0: Harvard Divinity School.
1: Leading Toward Justice. Intersections of Religion, Ethics, and Humanitarian Action. March 1st, 2022.
2: The RPL was created to support HDS students who are preparing for careers outside of traditional ministry or academia, which as you know, our MDiv and our MTS programs were originally created to funnel folks into. But as you also know, a lot of our students past and present go into careers outside of those spaces, including in government journalism and our focus today, humanitarian action. So we, in RPL we support the MDiv and the MTS students to understand how to leverage their religious studies degrees in these professions, and we do that through the Certificate in Religion and Public Life program, and we also have the new Masters of Religion and Public Life, which is an opportunity for experienced professionals to come and spend a year at HDS in order to think through what religion has to do in, in their work in these different fields, including humanitarianism. For all the alumnics who are watching today, we are eager to engage you as part of the RPL. So please be in touch to learn how you can plug in. At some point, I'll put my email address in the chat box so you can follow up with me if you'd like. Um, As Chandra mentioned, after HDS, I spent 14 years working in the peace building space. So I understand and appreciate intimately how a training in religious studies can prepare you to engage in the work of international humanitarianism in ways that can help advance that field, making it both more effective, more sensitive, and more justice-oriented. And this is critical for a world that faces current and pending crises, like the current crisis unfolding in Ukraine, which I know is top of our mind and heart's. But also those currently unfolding uh, in Yemen, in Myanmar, in Syria, and those currently unfolding and yet to unfold related to the climate collapse that is causing untold suffering in many places around the world, um, particularly in places that are already um, locations of of marginalization and violence. So I am thrilled to have three wonderful alumnics with us today who uh, have been working in the field of humanitarianism for some time after their graduations from Harvard Divinity School, to reflect with me on this topic. The, the three alumni that we have with us today are um, Karen C from International Bridges to Justice, Rick Santos from Church World Service, and Paul Washa who's with my former employer, the US Institute of Peace. So uh, we're going to put bios to their or links to their full bios in the chat box. I'm not going to waste any more time going through their illustrious background, um, but encourage you to look there for further for details. Um, and I'd like to start, but I want to just get into the conversation because we have so many, so many ways that we can approach this topic of what religious studies has to do with making. Um, with addressing humanitarian crises and and seeking to shape the field in ways um, that that bend it more towards justice. So let's get into it. And I'm gonna start by um, asking the panelists to introduce themselves a little bit, but to do so in a way where you're both sharing um, where you are now, what your role is, but also what led you into the work of humanitarianism. So Karen, if I could begin with you, please.
0: Great, thank you, thank you and hello everyone. And I'm super excited as I'm seeing the participants growing up and wondering who from Harvard Divinity School is here. So thank you so much. My name is Karen Chet. I'm the founder of International Bridges of Justice, which works to end torture as an investigative tool by giving people a lawyer early on in police stations and courtrooms. And I think what led me here was, I don't know, I used to be, I was a public defender first in San Francisco then I moved to Cambodia in 1994. I lived in Cambodia from 94 to 97, and trained the first group of public defenders because the Khmer Rouge had essentially killed all the lawyers. Um, and then I went to Harvard Divinity School, where I founded International Bridges of Justice. And so I guess it's the path that led me here has a lot to do with Harvard Divinity School, actually. And I know we'll get more into that later. So thank you, and thank you for welcoming us.
2: Thanks, Karen. Rick, over to
0: you.
1: Great. Thank you. Hello, everyone. Thank you for being with us uh, this morning. Uh, My name is Rick Santos and I'm president and CEO of Church World Service. I'm uh, in this role now for a little over a year. Uh, I was with the organization actually at another point in my career. um, And part of that time was overseas. Um, You know, how I got into this field um, was really uh, simple. I was volunteering. I became a volunteer in mission of the Presbyterian Church USA in Thailand in 1987. I was teaching at a place called Bangkok Christian College. And uh, in the the late 80s, there was a lot of refugees on the Thai border, uh, Vietnamese, Laotian and Cambodian. Uh, There was Thailand itself was going through. Uh, a classic kind of development, becoming a de- kind of a middle-income nation at the time. And a lot of the people I knew and met and, and, and really got to know and respect were was doing this work. Friends were, I went to the border and visited refugee camps. I was talking to people who had literally were flying in and out of uh, Vietnam, Cambodia, and Laos on a regular basis and really got to hear the stories from what was going on inside during that time. And, the, uh, and Aung, San, Aung San Suu Kyi won the presidency for the first time and was imprisoned. And uh, all of a sudden, there was a lot more refugees from uh, the Burmese side, or now Myanmar, on the border. So, so that experience really, I think, uh, led me and, uh, to, this, to this moment. And, uh, and maybe I'll stop there. Thanks. Thanks, Rick. I'll be curious to
2: hear then how HDS factored into that. Paul Asha.
3: Thank you, Susie. So I'm Bawasha Cocker. For the past eight years, I've been working at the United States Institute of Peace, as Susie mentioned. I'm currently the interim director for the Religion and Inclusive Societies team, having taken over after Susie left. Um, but really, uh, I've, when I've asked, you know, what, what has led me to this, it was at a very young age that I experienced the transformative of power, transformative power that religion has on very sensitive and contentious issues. So it was um, when I was 11 years old, the Russians were pulling out of Afghanistan. And my father, having been from Afghanistan, I was raised in in the United States, in Seattle, Washington. Um, My family decided to move back, um, but we got as far as the refugee camps in Peshawar, Pakistan. And it was there that I quickly realized that I was the only girl cousin going to school. And my girl cousins wanted to go to school, but they weren't being allowed to. And so I engaged with my uncles and aunts on this issue. And it was a very contentious issue. It wasn't until... I raised the issue within a religious framework uh, that I was able to see that there was movement and how important it was within Islam uh, for girls to get an education was really, uh, through that, was able to convince my uncles to allow their daughters to go to school. And that engagement, that opening, that seeing how transformative religion can be and opening up those kinds of spaces and having those very difficult discussions really got me interested in this space. I think that was really my beginning point. But then after that, I, I ended up studying um, peace building, conflict resolution and religion um, at Bethel College an undergraduate, and then going on to doing work in Afghanistan in this field that then led me to the Institute of Peace.
2: Thank you. And what strikes me, and, and I'll say this is not by coincidence, but that we have three folks here who are working in the humanitarian space from different kind of organizational locations, right? So Paul Washa is working in a, quasi governmental government adjacent government created institution with the United States Institute of Peace which was created by the US Congress. We have Rick and Karen both working for non-governmental organizations, um, but Rick is with Church World Service is working from a very explicitly faith-based faith grounded Christian specifically um, organization and Karen, um, International Bridges to Justice Um, which we'll get into a little bit more, but would be defined as as a secular NGO that's not coming from an explicit faith-based grounding or motivation. So I'm curious, working in these different locations about how your religious studies uh, training at HDS shaped the way in which you think about this work or approach this work um in humanitarianism from these different locations because of course the the standard training for somebody going into humanitarian action would be to um get a degree from from a school of international relations or or peace building or that kind of thing so and some of you do have um alternative degrees as well or studies as paul was speaking to but i'm curious about what specifically about your training at, at harvard divinity school in religious studies do you think has shaped um, your work in this space or how you do this this, this work in, in in ways that might be distinct? So, Karen, if I could go back to you, please.
0: Okay, great. I think I mean it's really interesting because when I went to Harvard Divinity School, I had already been a lawyer and worked, you know, both at the Public Defender's Office and the UN in Cambodia. And I actually thought that. I, would fi- I deferred admission to Harvard Divinity School 10 years earlier, so it was, very, <laughs> it was a very long time in coming. And I actually somehow thought that when I went to Divinity School, I would finally be able to just meditate and chill and be spiritual. And I wouldn't have to think about these things that were you know really bothering me all the time. I, w- I would be able to approach it in a different way. And actually it's really interesting for me because um, Divinity School brought me right back almost to where I started. Um, and in fact, threw me in, in a much deeper way, which is that when I was in divinity school, I began to realize, you know, I took all community building classes, and people power and change, and you know, all the, all classes that also looked at movements, and it really inspired me to understand that, I mean, I think maybe I thought I was to be a, as a lawyer, which is what I was, I'd be like working case by case by case, and there was some change, but I just felt um, maybe I was tired. Maybe I just felt like this impossibility of everything. And I think the huge shift for me was that at Harvard Divinity School, I began to, to really dream and envision a different world and understand that it actually is about love and spirituality. And, and with that, I, I myself um, had a, had a I, was, I was also rejuvenated in that space And realized that I could begin to work in this one area, which I thought was really, really hopeless, which is, you know, people being tortured as an investigative tool, just every day, what you call commonly accused people, but that we could actually find a way to build a movement around it that wasn't just legal and technical, but encompassed so many of the different areas of, of spirituality, which I, I, really became much more deeply exposed to at Harvard Divinity School. So I, I feel like absolutely, without a doubt, I would not have started International Bridges of Justice. And I founded it actually as my senior thesis. I wasn't sure if it was gonna fail or not fail because it wasn't exactly spiritually located in a way that the Divinity School was asking for. And yet I founded International Bridges of Justice at the Divinity School. And I know 100% that I would never have done it if I had not gone to Harvard Divinity School.
2: Thank you, Karen. That's great. I'm sure that's uh, a that fire under the butt of all of our students who are thinking about their senior thesis this year or next year as well, what it can lead to. But I also appreciate that it didn't lead to the career change that you were expecting, but it led to a, a different way in which you approach the work that you had previously been doing. And um, I know we'll come back to this, but I'm, I'm curious about how the kind of stuff of religion um, factors into the way in which Bridges to Justice does its does its work. So, Rick, let me turn it over to you. What does HDS have to do with with it all for you?
1: Yeah. So, so as I was telling the a bit about my time in Thailand, there are two, probably two other factors. Um, one was I was in a Thailand as a Buddhist majority country, and I was in a living with essentially a Christian community, uh, both a Thai Christian community, and then there was a missionary community. And really was interested in interfaith dialogue and, and what that meant and how that happened. Um, and so I think um, actually, I literally applied to HDS from Thailand and was surprised that I got in, and then, then was really surprised they didn't give me on campus housing. So I ended up living in Somerville. And uh, just as I went, um, as really, it was literally that trying to make sense of that experience of those years of the different pieces to that. Uh, so for me, as I as I came to HDS, I was thinking about the ministry. I was thinking about maybe an academic approach to interfaith dialogue. Um, and actually, I think maybe the good thing about HDS is that it gives you so many different experiences, and it helped me sort through um, those different things and made me realize I was not. The academic track that was that was not a good fit for me nor was it the ministry and that really my vocation and calling was around the humanitarian work and so 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 that was one piece of the course and and and, and just the experience there I would say the second was making sense of you know what does it mean to be in a world where you know you have refugees you have, um, really, a, a lot of deep po- pockets of poverty. I mean, poverty is really in Thailand. It's there's, of course, very wealthy areas, and when I was living there, there was deep pockets of poverty. And how how does that how does that fit? And and what is our role in in, in helping figure that out or being a part of the solution to that? Um, I would say the other thing for me that was really helpful was around the ethics of of local localization or local communities and local local faith actors being a part of. Uh, a, a Thai Christian minority um, in in Thailand, and 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 really, what actually I, the school I worked for, m- all my my colleagues were Thai. I was literally the only foreign person in that school. My bosses were Thai. Uh, really, having the experience of just just having worked in that a type of institution really helped me kind of try to figure out what is. How do we, if we approach this, how do we do that in a way that that is really honoring what's already there and and these local institution and people? So so I I don't know if there was whether it was a class on ethics, whether it was a class on on interfaith uh, conversation, whether it was some of the Buddhist classes I took. Um, I think all of them really were were contributive to this idea that this was really what I wanted to do. And I felt like I had a better framework for actually processing it as I moved forward. Thanks.
2: Thanks, Rick. That resonates a lot for me and my experience too. And I think for a lot of the students and thinking about this work that's outside of tr- our traditional formal understandings of ministry or the academia route as being vocations as well. And so approaching this kind of work in a different manner than what Karen was saying, was a legal technical solutions offered to these problems. Alasha.
3: Yeah. So I mentioned I had studied religion and peace studies and, um, I decided I wanted to do my master's really focusing on religion and women's rights. And so um, my idea was really, I wanted to uncover some of the powerful roles that women had played in early Islam and the potential that that created for women's rights and women's struggles and their rights today. And so I knew I wanted to study with a Muslim feminist scholar. So I had applied to a number of places. And of course, Professor Leila Ahmed was the top of my list. So I was really excited when I got into Harvard Divinity School to be able to study with a Muslim feminist scholar. That was really important to me. Um, But what happened was during orientation, 9-11 happened. And that really shifted my focus dramatically. So, you know, we heard all the rhetoric about the crusades uh, coming out of our own Uh, government, and we, we heard all kinds of religious rhetoric from different sides at that time. And so instead of looking at early Islam, I became focused on the way religion and gender was being used to politically motivate war, and specifically in Afghanistan, what was unfolding in Afghanistan. So I ended up focusing on the intersection of religion, gender, and politics when I was at HDS. Um, And I learned a lot about how war affects women differently, but also how religion plays a role in both opening up spaces for women, but also entrenching limitations on women during conflict. Um, I learned something really important also about how religion can shape biases and norms and assumptions, but also the concept of self-othering. And I thought that was really uh, an important lesson I learned through the research that I had been studying at, at HDS And it was really part of that understanding in terms of the intersection of religion and women's rights that I was looking at how to overcome victimization. And so this concept of self-othering was really important, understanding that. Um, And it it really led me uh, to my work in Afghanistan, where I was looking at uh, women in decision-making roles um, and looking at how they were taking on local issues and the impediments that they had in themselves to overcome this and the role that religion uh, was playing both in opening up those spaces, but also in the limitations. The other thing I learned at HDS was finding ways to analyze and describe outside of the boxes, religion. So oftentimes, you know, the colonial structures have put religion into these neat little boxes and have described things in a certain way. And so it was deconstructing those boxes and understanding the often messiness and the complexity of religious roles and institutions, both in conflict and peace and politics, and then being able to describe them in those messy, complex ways that they're not Part of some box, some neat little uh, 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 way of understanding how it all fits together clearly with you know within their spaces, and so letting them really sprawl in their complexities and their messiness in important ways, and so through that understanding, it really helped me in the work that I do at the United States Institute of Peace on doing religious landscape mappings and and really developing a methodology where it's not someone from the outside, but but voices from the inside telling us what's important about the religious narratives, what's important about the institutions, telling really their own stories about the religious landscape um, in in their countries. And finally, um, I also started my first constitutional research at Harvard. Um, when I was part of the Afghan Legal History Project. And that was really looking at the intersection of of women, religion in constitutions. And that's led me to a lot of the work and the research that I've been doing currently um, and understanding sort of the religious underpinnings to constitutions, not only historical in Afghanistan, but also in Muslim countries. And uh, the collaboration we did on the Three Pillar Project in terms of bringing together Uh, legal scholars and uh, rights activists and religious leaders together to talk about how they can build synergies between all three of them to do constitutional change. Uh, So these are some some three areas that I can remember that really have impacted the work that I've been doing uh, now.
2: Thanks, Mawasha. Those are great examples. And of course, Constitution, the the role that religion, how religion is talked about in legal structures and constitutions outside of Muslim majority countries is also incredibly important. Um, So the work that you're doing on that is critical. Uh, But it also strikes me what you were saying. I think a lot of what those who studied religious studies bring to the space of humanitarianism is that understanding the complexity and the messiness and being comfortable with that and trying to navigate the religious dimensions at at play, being attentive to. There's so much of an impulse to want to kind of define good religious leaders and bad religious leaders, good religion and bad religion. Um, in the humanita- humanitarian space and to instrumentalize it, sometimes in ways that can be deeply problematic. And so I think that that I have seen in my own work and in, in my own study and in other institutions that are more focused on international law, um, what, what we as religious studies scholars can contribute there. So I appreciate it. One quick word to those of you in the audience. Um, I have a couple more questions for, for our panelists that we're going to get to, but we also want to get to some of your questions. So feel free to throw those into the chat box. My friends in the alumni relations office are going to be monitoring that so we can turn to them in a moment. Um, but first, another question for all of you, which is getting into you know the devil or God is in the details, right? And so I would love to hear some anecdotes from each of you about a particular um, humanitarian crisis, a particular social justice initiative that you were involved in in your work, um, where you were able to bring some of this HDS training to bear and, um, and, and how that example kind of opens up this question of what religious literacy, what kind of religious literacy um, is relevant to humanitarianism and some of the ethical implications for that.
0: Karen, can I turn to you to start us off again? Thank you. Well, you can turn to me though. I, I sort of was stuck on this one. Paul Wash was saying something about methodology, right? And that I sort of clicked onto that from the perspective that I, I think for me, um, especially at Harvard Divinity School. Well, I was a, a MDiv, so I became ordained as a Unitarian Universalist minister. And much of what, um, what, much of what moved me into action was the part of the experiential um, experiences that I had while I was at HDS and being able to understand how those things transformed me. And you know, when I look at it, um, I can see that all the way through our organization with International Bridges of Justice. So I think like, like many of us, you know, the work is super challenging and super tough. And I remember at one point um, when we were in Burundi, we, I was speaking with one of our um, one of our justice makers, and you know we had run out of money, but she was really defending people who were being tortured, and it was in a very very delicate time. And I remember talking to her and saying, "Hey, you know what? You, we don't have any more money for you, <laughs> so you've got to find another job, as well as some of the other people." And I remember she turned to me and she took my hand, and you know I, I flew down to Burundi. She said, "You know, Karen, I don't think you understand, but our commitment with International Bridges of Justice is greater than the budget." So we will keep on, keep on, keep on. And, you know, as I look back, this actually has to do with methodology. What I realized is that, you know, it it, it came so much from my experiences at Harvard Divinity School, because for me, it was also about values. It was also about spirituality. It was also about like, finding a way to go deeper because I didn't believe before I went to Harvard Divinity School that we would ever be able to create a movement to end torture as an investigative toll where people could come together and bring whatever they could in the most difficult of circumstances. So when I looked back at her statement, I realized that it was also part of the methodology, you know, because when we go country by country and we're, we're in, we have projects in over 40 countries today, um, we always start with um, our community building and that, has to do with number one values clarification, where everyone goes through and goes, these are my values. This is why I'm committed to the work, and you know it goes all the way through at Harvard Business School. It's all about you know it's not just what's happening now, but to build an ethical future, you have to look at what happened in the past. So we have a trend section where we go um, to past, present, and future, and then we end it with a visioning exercise. So. Even though these things don't seem like they came from Harvard Divinity School, I recognize the fact that so much of our community building and the methodology that we place in order to bring out the deepest values and to look at the ways that we can sustain commitment, even in really difficult times, has just about everything to do with really Harvard Divinity School and where I began.
2: That speaks to what you were saying about going beyond legal or technical issues. So much of this is about movement making, which is the the stuff that we traditionally associate with religion in terms of meaning making, in terms of building communities, in terms of mobilizing and um, mobilizing in hope in the face of a great deal of suffering, and so on, um, becomes deeply relevant for creating sustainable programs in, in this space. Thanks for that example, Karen. Rick, can I turn to you? Tell us a story.
1: Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Susie. Actually, I saw Mike Foner put a question in the chat. And actually, Mike was in Thailand at the same time I was. And one of my decisions, reasons that I came to HDS was because of conversations with Mike. So just wanted to give him a shout out. Um, you know, I, I think what I mentioned earlier in terms of um, maybe I'll back up. So I think for me, I spent 10 years in Asia. Uh, in, in in that ten years, I spent a part of my time in, a, in in basically Buddhist majority countries, and the other part of my time in Muslim majority countries. As in a self-identified um, Christian and being a part of a Christian organization, having to navigate um, what that means. How 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 are you a Christian in another in, in a country of a, another um, religious majority, and how do you work with with them as as equal actors? And then the second piece to that is is local the the local component to that so I kind of feel I feel part of what I what I walked away from HDS my thinking around what are the ethics truly the ethical approaches to the 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 humanitarian development work we do and what does that mean in terms of religious actors as well as local actors and so for me I I would say my experiences in Thailand were very were were mimicked Uh, when we were in when I lived in vietnam we had local partners it was a lot of it was run through the, the 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 vietnamese government when i lived in bangladesh um i was really i literally my every boss everybody i worked with was bangladeshi i was the only foreigner essentially in that office um and really seconded to them to be their staff and then what does that mean? and how what i learned i probably learned more in those two years in bangladesh than i think anywhere else in my in my experiences and then finally when i was in indonesia we worked. We had a project that we had to implement, and and really the model, like like there was a lot of other organizations, a lot of big organizations implementing in Indonesia at the time, and they did a very kind of top down expat heavy model. I was the only expat in of my office. Our model was to reach out to local organizations across um, uh, both Muslim and Christian, uh, and looking to see how we could partner on the intervention, and also the design of the intervention was actually done in a co- collaborative. Uh, uh, partnership with the local organizations. Interesting, like that model, I, you know, the churches, the U.S. churches, I have to give a lot of credit, there's there's something called accompaniment where the missiology of U.S. Protestant mainline churches really changed in a couple decades ago about how they devolved power and resources to their local actors. And I think that was also kind of a part of the conversation in the back of my head as, as I was trying to move forward in a more secularized um, kind of development um, context. So for me, just, just having the ability to, I would say, look at that and, and really just simply ask, what is the ethical uh, kind of response to this? And, and, and I think for me, you know, that really was helpful, both in a really interesting way in my later career, um, when I was uh, head of something called IMA World Health, as we worked with local partners in the DR Congo on sexual and gender-based violence, our model was absolutely a, a local partner first model. And really trying to, and the design was all based on a local partnership model. So, so for me, I just feel like the, those experiences out of HDS really kind of cemented um, the, the ability for me to ask those questions as I did the work that I do. Thanks. Thanks, Rick. Yes, the, the
2: reflective, critical, ethical Um, way of approaching the world. I often say that what I got out of my HDS education was what that was most valuable was not necessarily the stuff I learned, but the way I learned how to walk in the world and and see the world and the kind of questions that I asked. Alasha, if I can turn to you next.
3: Thank you. So having looked at the intersection of, of religion and political rhetoric, It really hit home to me how important religious framing was and understanding the messages, uh, political messages, um, but also um, those that that come from a religious perspective are. And so, currently, I've been asked to often translate for policymakers the language that religiously framing groups like the Taliban, for example, use um, and help them understand how they're using the messaging you know, how are they messaging to their constituencies versus how they're messaging to the international community, what those messages mean, what kinds of implications do they have, are they talking about this as, um, you know, messaging to their constituencies that this is going to be a long haul, you know, you should just uh, be patient with us as we work through this peace process, or are they messaging that you know, we've won, this is a victory, you know, uh, everybody celebrate and, and we're going to do fine. It's, it's that, that kind of language is really important in terms of understanding the, the religious framing. For example, um, there was references to a, a, a verse in the Quran or there are references to a treaty uh, given, a historical treaty. So I work um, oftentimes in translating that. And that really came out of my my own uh, uh, interest in my early stage when I was at uh, Harvard Divinity School and then working with um, also the professors there in terms of understanding and sort of unpacking what was happening, what was unfolding while I was there at HDS after 9-11. In some ways it's also sort of being an ambassador and a bridge builder and so because I understand the religious framing and understanding the importance of the religious framing in the religious context and the political context. It's also understanding the political context and helping translate that on both sides. So it's the bridge builder and the being the ambassador. So, um, you know, and and, and some of the workshops that we have where we're bringing um, religious actors to dialogue with policymakers or religious actors to dialogue with activists. um, It's really helping uncover some of the assumptions and facilitating those conversations that HTS has helped me do. Uh, so that I can really, um, it's, it's more than just translating, but it's also framing the questions in such a way that it helps the participants themselves um, uncover their own assumptions and really be able to dialogue more um, authentically uh, once they are aware of their assumptions in those cases. And so it's, it's really in that engagement with religious actors that that bridge building and that um, ambassadorship helps. So one in translating policy,
2: but also in, in really creating those kinds of bridges. Thank you. Thanks, Hawasha. That resonates a lot for me. I often felt like I was doing a lot of that interpretive work between the two worlds as well, and and recognizing that a lot of my colleagues in um, State Department or in international organizations and so on just weren't necessarily trained through their their own training at schools of public policy or international relations to be able to um, understand and relate to and interpret some of those religious narratives and concerns and so on, but there was actually a lot of overlap between the concerns of humanity, the humanitarian world and the political world um, and their objectives and the faith worlds. Um, And so there was a lot, lot to be gained in building those bridges in terms of finding solidarity and allyship for addressing these issues related to to justice or human suffering. for the next question, I'm going to mix it up a little bit. I'm just warning you in advance. So Rick, I'm going to turn to you first and then Kowasha and Karen. So give give Karen an, an opportunity to listen to her colleagues and respond to them. But I want to turn to, um, you know, there has in in the past decade, but in particular, uh, in the aftermath of the murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis, there has been a lot of really critical discussions that have been ha- happening within the space of humanitarianism um, about issues related to kind of endemic colonial structures or endemic um, issues of race and power and so on that are operating within humanitarianism. So this connects as well to a question that um, Rick's friend Mike asked about um, the, the challenges of operating within a humanitarian system that was baked in a particular um, context and has been shaped by certain issues of, of justice and power that can unintentionally entrench some of those, those uh, forms of racism or, or forms of um, classism and, and so on. And I'm curious, um, I'm curious how, what kinds of justice questions each, how you see that playing out, but then also in your own organizations, sorry, how you see that playing out in your own organizations, but also for you as individuals working in this, in the space of humanitarianism, what kind of justice questions do you bring to the Indian industry of humanitarianism
1: and, and what you do in it?
2: So Rick, can I turn to you first?
1: Yeah, great. Thank you, Susie. I think that's such an important and such a relevant question right now. You know, the the idea of of international organizations, local organizations, it all came out of post World War II, a post World War II charity model. Um, that model evolved over time, and the, the basically the power dynamics around those never really changed. So you had you know essentially the wealthier nations, mostly European, U.S., North American. Um, having a whole lot of power in terms of decision making, how resources are allocated, and so on and so forth. So, so this has been something that I think that that the whole humanitarian community has has struggled with. I think that George Floyd has brought it really to, to, to the fore. You know, I think there's, but there are been there have been trends in this in this field for a while. There, uh, USA over under rod shaw called called it usaid forward where they're trying to devolve more of the resources and decision making to local actors um after that there was they called you know during the 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 trump period um they called it localization um and they were trying to do like uh uh, some reform around um procurement but i think the long term i I think the long-term justice issues have to revolve around who makes decisions who has the power in that decision making and how how do we as as international actors how do we 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 uh, assert uh, come a support for for folks on the ground who are who are trying to get the work done and and do it well, you know my experience. I I I, I don't often say this, but my when I look at back at my entire career, I think the, 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 I mentioned just slightly about this idea of Bangladesh. I, when I lived there, probably the smartest people, the people who understood development the most, the people who I look. To, towards is the most innovative were my colleagues, my Bangladeshi colleagues. And I, I look at that as kind of a, a, my two years, there's almost a mini MBA in development. Um, and they were there have been on the front lines of different trends. And so what I liked about the faith community's involvement with the, the the group at that time. We had, the, the structure was an ecumenical structure. It was called a round table. Uh, resource partners came to that table. They, they, our Bangladeshi partners essentially laid out a plan. It was agreed to, and then they implemented it. And we, it was literally hands off and letting, letting the, our Bangladeshi um, local partners really take charge, run it and and be, to be able to do it themselves. And so the the ability of having private money versus uh, money from, let's say, um, uh, development institutions, multilateral, bilateral, also made a huge difference in that period. And I think actually today you see a lot more conversation, a lot more awareness of it, but the structures, the way that they're formed around the multilateral and bilateral funding still are stuck in that kind of older paradigm. And so, I mean, one of the things I feel really good about with both CWS is we've always had a very light footprint, a, a light expat footprint, which is a big difference. You know, you you know I, I think it's insulting. You bring in 30 expats to a country and say, hey, we know how to do this better than you. And in fact, it's been always the opposite with with organizations I work for. We've brought in as literally as the bridge to the to the funding model and to the to the resources and the ability to interpret back to you know you need somebody to do that but in fact actually the work that gets done on the ground is done predominantly by local players so i feel like the the faith community actually has led in this area uh and i I, sometimes i think the secular world doesn't really give the faith community um it's due for having doing things like this, like cutting edge, just, just one other quick example, you know, in 1964 and in 1967, yeah, there was something called tubigen one and tubigen two, which was essentially churches, Protestant churches coming together, saying public health had to be, public health has to be the primary way, their primary Public health has to be the way that we deal with health in the world. It took a decade for the WHO to come come to that same conclusion in Alma Ata in 1978. So they're, they're, I feel really good that, and I feel today, Churchill Service and our, our our sister organizations are still on the cutting edge of of issues like this. Thanks.
2: Thanks, Rick, and that's uh, and, and that's particularly relevant to where you're operating from, from a faith-based organization, of course, because religious communities, as we know for millennia, have been on the front lines of responding to human suffering, and so this local, this move towards localization within the industry of humanitarianism, like you said, I mean, that's when, when you're already working with religious actors and organizations and faith-based institutions. They they are grounded in grassroots community. Um, Palasha, can I turn to you next, please?
3: Sure, thank you. I really like what Rick said in terms of, you know, understanding who makes the decisions. But I think also one of the things that has come up in terms of who's producing the knowledge as well and what kind of knowledge is being produced and um, and then also assumptions that are underlying in that knowledge production. And oftentimes we've seen Uh, Particularly as it relates to women's rights, there's these secularist assumptions that religious women are somehow disempowered or oppressed. um, And that often has come up in in not identifying the role that religious women have been playing, um, particularly uh, in the field of peace building that I've been looking at. And so I started a project on uh, religious women negotiating on the front lines. And, um, you know, we noticed that religion have been quietly taking, religious women have been quietly taking initiatives on behalf of their communities to negotiate with violent extremists, with armed militias, with different parties, the conflict they negotiate or they, they mediate. Um, and these women are often unseen and they fall through the cracks both because they're not secular women. There's the assumption about secular women that are doing this work and that they're also pushing back um, you know, the, uh, about women's rights but also because they're not traditional um, clerical male religious leaders. So oftentimes people will go to when they do do the religious engagement side. of. So I've been working with partners um, and a team that documents the cases of these women in dozen countries all over the world. The next phase that we hope to work with these women, develop a curriculum and peer-to-peer training. Now, the thing about the, the development of the curriculum, is so it's not just producing the knowledge about the information about these women that comes through their case studies and through local women who are interviewing them, but it's also about developing a curriculum that these women themselves develop because they have the knowledge. Rick, mentioned this. The knowledge is there. It's not about us coming from the outside and telling them, oh, we know better than you. We can tell you how to do this better, but it's really about working locally with that knowledge and facilitating the conversations for them to develop the curriculum and then for them to do the peer-to-peer training themselves rather than coming from the outside um and so this one example but a lot of the work that we do really tries to uh work with local partners work with um people who are who have the knowledge themselves at the local level and really facilitate those conversations and facilitate ways in which Um, They can do their work more effectively and facilitate the linkages between either within the the country, but also in the region with different uh, countries as well, so that it's not us from the outside telling them what they can do better, but rather bringing that knowledge to bear so they can learn from each other.
2: That's great. Maybe what we can do is also give a link to folks for that work on religious women negotiators, because I know you have a lot more of the stories and examples on the USIP website of of these women. And like you say, a lot of times they've been rendered invisible by um, the industry of humanitarianism because of certain assumptions about how religion relates to women's rights and women's experiences. So thank you for those further examples as well of just localization of knowledge that is produced about what the situation is in the context and what the humanitarian solutions to it are. Karen, can I turn to you, please?
0: Yes, and thank you, Paul Washa. Thank you, Rick. And thank you, Susie. Um, So I have been thinking about which example to use because honestly, this, I'd say that in the area of justice and human rights, the donor community is completely racist and colonialist and has been. And it's just absolutely, completely outrageous. And, you know, I often see it as like, you know, it's so cool to go in on sort of like a, you know, knight in shining armor and saying you're wrong, you did this wrong. And now we're great because we get to say it. And I tell you, what, the international community has spent so much time and effort in making itself look good and actually doing bullshit for what needs to happen on the ground. So I would give as one example, you know, people always are, are worried about um, like an example for is Cambodia is, you know, t- Cambodia has a torturous past. There's no presumption of innocent. Millions of people were killed. And so the donor community says, yep, we're going to put in over $300 million now, now that the Khmer Rouge is gone, in order to prosecute nine people. Meanwhile, on a daily basis, people are tortured because torture is the cheapest form of investigation. It costs $30,000 to set up a defender resource center in one province, which would protect people from being tortured today. But what does the donor community say? oh no, we don't do that. We would be so much happier not to support the local defenders who can protect the presumption of innocence today and move forward into an ethical future. We wanna kind of stay in the past because we're gonna really look good when we do this. Now, I would say gratefully, and I should say this because this is public, I feel like things have really are, really are changing and George Floyd has done a lot. So thank you, George Floyd for understanding even that the criminalization of race and poverty is not just in the United States, it's a global phenomenon. So we really look forward to seeing how the communities change and the donor community begins to see that if you don't have defenders, you don't have democracy, you don't have justice, and that you really need to support local public defenders in their work and going into like the darkest places and supporting human rights. I, I think that it's there's just a a narrative that is much more comfortable in the human rights space, which is about condemning, which is about saying this is wrong and not actually going in to build local capacity for human rights by implementing certain laws that can protect people.
2: Thanks, Karen. I agree there's been a lot more um, willingness to engage the justice questions and comfort, though it's still destabilizing to, to a lot of the international donor community and organizations and so on for these questions to be raised. But it strikes me using the language of religion, it's kind of moving us from a charity model of thinking about humanitarianism, um, with all of the problematics associated with the, with the charity model to, to really one that is, um, disrupting the the ways of doing things in order to ensure that the power is in different hands and the decisions are being made in different hands. And recognizing as well some of the hypocrisy that exists when, um, especially in the US context, going overseas. I can remember distinctly being in Myanmar working with police officers on reform that was happening um, following the 2010 uh, political transition. Um, quasi-political transition that happened there at the time and and talking to police officers there about um, majority-minority community dynamics in policing at the same time that Baltimore was burning and and being very cognizant of what it means to be an American going overseas talking about these issues when these are things we haven't figured out at home and we still have very entrenched questions of, of race and justice in and how we address these issues at home and what we then import overseas that can be deeply problematic. So thank you to all of that. We have other questions that have been coming in and I, I wanna make sure we get, some, we get to these questions. So um, Olga asks about one thought, belief, or idea that you had when you came to HDS that was undone um, after attending HDS. And this is a, a question that's for any of the panelists. I can get started, actually, on this one. (laughs) Um, I think, you know, I spoke earlier to there's a there is a strong impulse in the um, in the humanitarian field um, for those who aren't trained in religious studies to want to identify the quote unquote good religious actors um, and the good religious ideas that can be mobilized to legitimate the humanitarian agenda. Um, or the international community's agenda. And when I came to HDS, it was, it was right after 9-11. And, and I was very motivated by a similar kind of idea that was a very instrumentalist approach to religion. Like what can I pull from religion in order to advance these particular political aims? And I came out of it with a, I, I, I was, um, was disabused of that idea of first of all, religion being so simplistic, and any one religious idea, a religious actor, a religious community is itself going to be incredibly complex and ambivalent. Um, but secondly, um, disabused of the idea of, of sort of using religion as a resource rather than being more in a partnership mode. And um, and as well seeing that like disabused of this idea that Paul was talking about earlier of religion being in particular categories that could be or or um, boxes that could be identified in these societies. So I was just, I was I was given this more complex understanding that, that, um, you know, for a moment in my process at HDS made me feel anxious about, well, then how am I actually gonna do this work when I get into the humanitarian space? But, but actually opened up a lot more possibility of what it means to think about religion in this space and to engage where it's appropriately with religious resources and doing this work.
0: Does anybody else wanna tackle this question? I think that for myself, I came in with a pretty bifurcated notion that I was either, now I'm gonna to go to divinity school or I was gonna work in justice. And actually that took me the first two years to figure out. I was like, is it this way or is it this way to realize that actually love and justice and spirituality are very married and can be, and, and the incredible power with that
2: notice there's a lot of people who come in with law degrees or who go out and get law degrees (laughs) subsequently. It doesn't surprise me because um, so much of our religious traditions across the board are concerned with questions of of justice.
0: Um,
2: We have a couple other questions. I'm going to throw them both out given how we're quickly marching towards the end of our hour here. So feel free to answer one or both of them. Um, but from, from Arlie, we have questions specifically targeted to Rick, but I think can pertain to, to Karen and Pawasha as well about the experiences outside of the classroom at HGS that helped inform your decision to pursue humanitarian, humanitarian work while you, were, while you were at Harvard. And then secondly, from Hunter, a question about the role for nuns in the space of humanitarianism. So nuns with no N-O-E-S. Um, Those who aren't coming at this from an explicit faith-based perspective or orientation, what role do they have to do in, or what can they contribute in the work of humanitarianism, especially working with faith-based organizations in that space?
1: Rick, can I turn to you first? Yeah, I don't know if there was any activities. I mean, I was at HDS during the first uh, Gulf War. And so one of my colleagues, uh, one of my, actually, I think one guy from the HDS um, actually went and and served in the military during that. And I think that just reinforced, um, I would say, my understanding around how important international development was. How important it was to really understanding other cultures and other faiths. Um, and so, so during my time having that in the background, I would say probably the other thing was I, I worked for a group that. Um, uh, in a leadership capacity that, that led high school kids overseas. I know you probably, this is probably all thing is probably crazy, but I took 17 high school kids to Thailand um, in between my two years. And it really reconnected me to sharing with them that experience um, uh, of, of living overseas, what it means and, and seeing through their eyes, like just how, how this all works and, and, and these are very privileged kids whose parents can send them overseas for six weeks. Um, and so I, I think those, the, the, the Gulf War background and then that experience really just kind of cemented that, that this was the direction I wanted to go.
0: Oh, sure. Karen, do you want to answer one or both of these questions? I'll answer the nun question. I'll, I'll answer the nun question because I think I'm a nun. Or I'm either a nun or an everything, and you know, for me, and and it's you know very true because with International Bridges of Justice, we have everyone and everything, where spirituality is really super important, right? So I remember coming together on a retreat, and it was one person was like, okay, he was Hindu, and one was like, okay, no, I'm Buddhist, so now we have to love chant, and the other guy was like, I am a preacher, and I preach every Sunday, so I'm gonna preach to everybody, you know, I'm a Christian preacher. So I'd say we're we're none everything and everything, and some people are none, but there's like a, an inherent um, respect for all of the love that we have and the spirituality in whatever name we call it that we bring, which is you know all about love and hope and faith. Thanks,
1: Karen Palasha.
0: I don't. That's such a
1: beautiful
3: note to end. <laughs> um, I'm. Uh, I was thinking about you know, other experiences around HDS. I think, you know, I had some really great interactions, great dialogue experiences and organizing conferences when I was at HDS. So the uh, Islam in America conference and being exposed to some of the top, you know, religious scholars in the field by being able to bring them through these conferences, that was really instrumental for me. Um, But I think also the experiences with um, other colleagues of other religions and having those conversations at tea, um, doing Tai Chi together in the hall, uh, things like that were really uh, gave me an appreciation for various levels and approaches to spirituality outside of my own uh, that were really important to me um, and, and really shaped uh, my own openness to uh the kinds of approaches and work that I do. I mean, a lot of the the conversations, you know, in terms of thinking originally that things are in boxes or things are, are you know, so limited. There's also this idea that there's just one Hinduism and there's one Buddhism and there's one Islam, but there's so many different ways that, that, uh, that people um, practice their religion and understand their religion and embody their religion. And so understanding that multiplicity through experiences outside of the classroom at Harvard was also really important.
2: Thanks, Alasha. Karen, did you want to add something?
0: I was thinking that it was probably my internship um, in Haverhill. So I don't know if any of you know where Haverhill is, but it's an hour away (laughs) from Cambridge. And I did an internship at the Unitarian Universalist Church in Haverhill because I was a new UU. And so no other churches close by really wanted me. So I went all the way out to Haverhill. But I tell you what, it was really, it was, um, I think it was, very much um, supportive and forming of me because I still was completely obsessed with human rights, and all my sermons had to do with you know, love and human rights and everything else. And it was just a really supportive space where I found my voice in being able to articulate um, what what didn't have a form for, and that really led me to be articulated as a formed international religious justice.
2: Great. Thank you, Karen. And thank you to all three of you. I'm going to invite Chandra back onto the screen because we have reached the the midnight hour here in Cambridge. Um, But thank you for the work you do, for your reflections here. I'm going to be in touch with all of you uh, about connecting you with the Religion and Public Life program and with our students here who are seeking to go into the field of humanitarianism. But thank you for illustrating what it looks like to take um, a religious studies degree into this space. Chandra amazing. Thank you. Thank you so much, Susie, Pawasha, Rick, and Karen. Um, This was a fantastic discussion. Um, and Thank you to um, everyone in the audience for all of your wonderful questions and for joining in. I do wish we had more time, but I hope and I I know that you'll continue to reflect and discuss all of this. Um, um, I hope you'll also um, continue to stay connected with HDS by checking out our website and following Harvard Divinity School on Facebook. Twitter and Instagram. Um, We are really looking forward to connecting with you. So thank you all very, very much.
1: Sponsor HDS Office of Development and External Relations.
0: Copyright 2022, the President and Fellows of Harvard College.